Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mike Lee, the movie director, has this story he likes to tell. I'll set it up for you. He's in his early 20s. He's living in London, where he'd moved from Manchester, where he grew up. He's taking classes at the London Film School. And one night, the school puts on a special screening of Rear Window, and they're going to have a Q&A session with the director, Alfred Hitchcock. I had already seen Rear Window several times, and I was working in a cafe, as a, as clear, clearing tables and things. So um, I had already seen it. I had just arrived just at the end for the Q&A, and it was in this basement preview theatre in, in Soho in London. And I arrived at the lift, and there was Hitchcock, the two of us standing. And we got into the lift. I was completely overcome with because it was Alfred Hitchcock, and I was overwhelmed, and I won't deny it. Um, and for a kind of feeble joke, I said to Hitchcock, I hope we're not late, kind of meaning I hope we haven't missed it, which was fairly silly. And Hitchcock snapped, I'm not late. <laughs> and that, that was it. That was my, that was my um, verbal intercourse with Alfred Hitchcock. It's Bullseye. <laughs> this week, Mike Lee, one of my favorite directors, maybe my favorite director, He's been making movies for over four decades. He applies the same philosophy to every one of his films. As far as I'm concerned, filmmaking should be like the way people write novels, paint pictures, make sculpture, write poems, make music, etc. Which is to say, the journey of making the piece of work is an organic, truthful investigation of discovering what it is. And I will ask him a legendary director of great arthouse films, if he would ever consider making a blockbuster action movie. No, because that's not what I do, and I'm not interested, and I would f*** it up, basically. (laughs) It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mike Lee is one of my favorite film directors. Actually, he's probably my favorite film director. He isn't the most famous director. He's never made a blockbuster. He's been nominated for seven Academy Awards, and he's never won one. He doesn't work with super famous actors either. I mean, there's a Sally Hawkins or a Gary Oldman every now and then, but hardly ever is there Judy Dench or Colin Firth, and Lee prefers it that way. His films are honest and real and touching. Another year, Mr. Turner, naked. Lee has a distinctive mode of working. His goal is to represent real life on film. It starts with his actors creating a script from improvisation over a lengthy collaborative rehearsal process. And by the time the movie is in theaters, you see people on the screen who seem like real people. And this is not an exaggeration, but I started this show almost 20 years ago. And since that time, I have wanted to have a chance to talk to Mike Lee. I'm so excited that it is happening now. So he has a new movie. It's out right now. It's called Peterloo. It's a historical drama. It's set in Manchester in the northern part of England, Lee's hometown. And if you're rusty on your English history, here's a refresher. Actually, 
whether or not you're rusty on your English history. This is something that they don't even teach in a lot of English schools. The Peterloo Massacre took place in 1819. The UK was still recovering from a lengthy war against Napoleon. The economy faltered, hitting England's north especially hard. People were asking for change, demanding it. And on August 16th that year, they took to the streets for a demonstration. They wanted democracy, representation. And when British authorities tried to arrest one of the speakers, things quickly spiraled out of control. Eighteen people were killed, hundreds more were injured, and among the dead were women and children. Here's a bit from the film. In the run-up to the demonstration, organizers held planning meetings. They wanted to address the concerns of the people, the excessive spending of the government, high rent, food security, basic human rights. In this clip, we're taken to one of those meetings with a couple of the movement's leaders, Samuel Drummond, played by Danny Corain, and John Bagley, played by Nico Miralegra. But what good is a parliament if it does not represent its people? What right does a king have to a payout from the government of £2 million per annum? A king who has lost his senses, if he ever had any. And what right does our good, gracious, illustrious, or should I say, big fat prince have with one and a half million? He has no right! What right do these men have with this money when those they have robbed are starving for want? They have no right, no right at all! No, sir, they do not have that right. No! But we have a right. Aye! We have a right to present a petition to this big fat prince... And that we propose to do. This petition will demand, at last, a fair, proper and full representation for all Englishmen. I spoke with Mike Lee in a hotel suite in Los Angeles. Mike Lee, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Well, it's great, and you've just told me that it's taken 20 years for me to be on this show. Coming up on, coming up on, 18, I think. Well, I feel uh, more than singularly privileged, <laughs> if uh, if not slightly late. <laughs> it's a pretty slim distinction, yeah. Mike. I'm not nothing. Um, you went to so many different kinds of college and university and did so many things in the first, like, five years of your career. Um you went to theater school uh, as an actor. You went to film school for a year. You were a professional actor for a year. Um, you went to two different art colleges, is Correct. that right? Yeah, yeah. So how did you end up doing all of these different things? Why, why didn't you just pick one? Well, it wasn't a question of uh, not knowing what to do. I, they were all... I mean, you couldn't uh, really study everything that I felt I wanted to know about in order to do what I wanted to do, which was to do what I do, which is to make stories, to make plays, to make films, primarily to make films. Um, I only went to the London Film School uh, at nights because I couldn't afford to go on the full-time course. And anyway, I was doing the other things as well, which you just talked about. Um, so I trained as an actor. I knew I didn't want to be an actor. I was just interested in it. I wanted to direct and write, which is what I do. I went on a, the um, 
a foundation course at the Camberwell Art School in London, which was great because it's the only of all those various things. It was the one thing that wasn't directly related to film or theatre, but it was terrific because we drew, we painted, we did life drawing, we did lithography, we did art history, we did uh, pottery and sculpture and everything, you know, including, you know, um, classical hand letter carving and stuff like that, you know. Were you good at any of that stuff? Yeah, well, I can draw. I mean, I could easily just have gone to art school and nothing else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was good because it it gave me much more than just those. It wasn't about those skills. I mean, I had done, been to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and done the actor training there, which was two years in those days. And it was a pretty awful experience from many points of view. I mean, someone said it was good. I mean, I'd got out of Manchester. I was in London. I was being a student and I was sort of doing stuff and you were learning the skills of putting on plays and all that. But it was dead. It was old-fashioned theatre stuff. You know, you learnt the lines, you learnt the moves. You never discussed the characters or the background or the motivation or the meaning or you didn't do any research and did any... You certainly didn't do any improvisation. You simply put plays on in a mechanical superficial way and that was uh well that just set me thinking about alternative possibilities and of course there were interesting things going on out there that grown-up artists were doing but when i got to the camberwell art school a couple of years later and i was you know in the life drawing class one particular day in the life drawing class we were you know everybody was sitting around it was a summer's day it was very, there was a great atmosphere of concentration. There was a, a nude model and we were all, everyone was doing an investigation and drawing and uh, and expressing something real and, you know, making an investigation of something that actually was organic. And I remember thinking, you know what? What is happening in this room is something we never experienced in the drama school. A real concentrated work on finding a truth. It was completely superficial. So that, in, in other words, it, that, that experience contributed to my sense of the possibilities of what you might do with actors and so on. I heard you, I read an interview where you drew a parallel between working as a director and drawing. And I think when I read it, I didn't realize that you are a drawer, but it was something about that like when you are drawing if you draw you are like you're going through like a very deeply personal process uh that comes from having done this thing your entire life even outside of the context of whether you went to school for it and learned techniques and so on and so forth but it's like drawing is like for people who draw it's like a such a direct thing look the the, the fundamental things relating all of this to what I actually do and <clears throat> have been doing for, for years with, with certainly the films of mine that you're familiar with and so on, um, is that as far as I'm concerned, filmmaking should be like the way people write novels, paint pictures, make sculpture, write poems, make music, etc. Which is to say, the journey of making the piece of work is an organic truthful investigation of discovering what it is. Now, that only becomes, in a way, that's a sort of, that is so dead obvious, it's, it's platitudinous to even uh, articulate it. But as we know, the way movies get made uh, spits in the face of such fundamental 
conception because committees are formed and people, you know, the, the general convention of making a movie is that really it's been, the movie has been made in everybody's head and to a great extent a lot of paper before anybody ever goes out and shoots a shot. Now, that to me is total anathema and doesn't make any sense. And so I've, what I do and what I've always done is to say, well, you know, the job is to do as much preparation as we like, as we can, so that, and that preparation itself is an organic investigating process, so that we can get out there on location and make up a movie, investigate in the location and dis discover the actual material in an organic way, which, of course, is not news to documentary makers and it's not news, as I say, to artists in all sorts of other media. Did you think that you were going to become a filmmaker, particularly when you were a kid? Yeah. Um, I used to sit in the cinema. I, I grew up in Manchester in a very uh, un, unartistic environment and I used to sit in the cinema as a kid. I was quite a small kid thinking... Wouldn't it be great if you could have a film where the characters in the film were like real people, as opposed to what people are like in movies? Um, and I sort of, I always had an instinct. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, I saw a lot of movies as a kid. I saw a lot of theatre, a lot of uh, what we called variety, which is kind of like a musical theatre, pantomimes we have, circus. You know, uh, I was um, a sucker for all of it, basically. Uh, I mean, I suppose at one stage, I think I probably went through a, an infantile fantasy about being a comic. Of sort, of, I think Charlie Chaplin in um, Limelight, crap film though it is. Now, as we now look at it, um, I mean, there were two main things about that movie which I saw. I think it came out when I was nine. Uh, one was that I wanted to be him in his act and the other is of course uh, uh, Claire Bloom was my first screen crush um, I incidentally went to a film festival in Bologna a couple of years ago and she was there and uh, they interviewed me about it was a Chaplin centenary uh, it was the centenary of, the, of his films here in Hollywood and um, uh, so they interviewed me about and I said to Claire I'm going to mention you in this and I actually mentioned the fact that she was my first screen crush she was very amused but we digress uh, but of course I, by the time I was in my teens I was putting on shows and getting stuff together and getting people to do things so I kind of was moving inevitably in the direction of being a filmmaker and a director I heard you tell an amazing story about being 12 years old at your grandfather's funeral. Well, whether it's an amazing story or not, I don't know, but it's true. It, uh, it was a winter's day in Manchester. Snow was on the ground and in the not very big house um, of my grandparents. The, these guys were everyone was standing in the hall, you know, it was a general funeral atmosphere. And the, these guys were struggling downstairs with the coffin there was one guy with a very long nose and a very long drip off the end of his nose. I remember thinking at the age of 12, this would make a great movie. That's what I want to do. I want to make films about things like this. You know, I remember that, you know. And the, I mean, the particular quality that struck me about it, about that anecdote, was the prospect of you are, you know, obviously you're in a situation with incredible emotional stakes because yeah. you've lost a relative that you yeah, loved. Yeah, I, yeah. I presume you loved your grandfather. Yeah. Um, and you are also 
engaged in the very weird artistic act yeah, of but the two noticing, things, noticing snot coming out of someone's nose. You but know the two I mean? things are entirely inseparable. The emotions of the occasion and the, de- the human detail are totally inseparable as far as I'm concerned. One thing is part of the other. I mean, that's... And the snow on the ground as well, you know. The fact the doors were open because the coffin was going outside and everyone was, was cold and all that stuff, you know. So speaking of the fact that as a young, even as a very young man, you were thinking that filmmaking, you, you wanted to be at least part of what you were doing. I know that theater was also part of it. Well, again, they're two parts of the same, the right. two sides of the thing. How did you think, like, uh, how close was that to your, to your idea of the possible when you were a teenager or even when you went to, even, even going to film school? Well, once you, once you embark on the journey, you take it for granted that's what you're going to do. I was incredibly lucky in the time I spent in the London Film School. I mean, technically, I went there for a year at nights, but we could go any time we liked. And it so happened that while I was there, by a complete coincidence, a guy, a Turkish student, had graduated, very rich guy. So he hung around and decided to... Uh, he thought it would be useful to him if he went out of his way to invite to the school every film celebrity of any significance uh, to come and do a Q&A at a screening and then we give them an honorary diploma of the school and so on. So in a short space of time, we actually had Hitchcock, Truffaut, John Huston, uh, Dimitri Tjomkin, Robert Enrico, uh, Richard Brooks. Uh, we had... Um, uh, Raoul Coutard, who shot all Truffaut's films, we had... I mean, the list was long as your arm, you know, it was extraordinary. And all these guys came... Uh, Fritz Lang came, and Fritz Lang was... We, we were sitting there till two o'clock in the morning with Fritz Lang telling us stories about how he escaped from Nazi Germany and all the rest of it with his eye patch. I mean, it was like... And, of course, by that stage... And, and you know, I was spending all the time going to the National Film Theatre and seeing all the movies. And, you know, I never discovered world cinema until I left... Manchester at the age of 17 to come to London, to go to London. Uh, I only saw British and Hollywood movies, you know. I didn't, you know, you knew that there was. I, by the time I was 17, 18, I knew that Eisenstein had made the battleship material. I'd never seen it, you know. So by the time you're into all that, by the time your life becomes about, you know, uh, you're talking to live directors and you're looking at movies and all that, you take it for granted that's what you're going to do because that's what you're on, that's the journey you're on, you know. I didn't think I was going to be a taxidermist. <laughs> <No. laughs> I mean, one of the experiences that I've had, because I've been doing the show for a long time, um, and, you know, I, we only book people on this show that I, you know, like and admire for whatever reason. And for, in your case, it's because of your handsome beard. And, <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, one of the things that you realize real quick, and I wonder if you had this realization, you know, uh, sitting across from uh, Hitchcock or whatever in a in a classroom, is you're like, oh, right. Like, even the most gifted artist, even the most brilliant technician, uh, whatever qualities they may be, oh, that's just a person. Like, I'm a person too. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I think you're, you're onto a quite a good in the end yeah i mean that's one of the paradoxes of or the ironies if you like for me of being in this ridiculous place we're in called hollywood which you know i mean they're just people 
there. Yeah. Incidentally, just just as a matter of anecdotal interest, they were at Hitchcock. There was there were Q and As. There weren't classrooms. They were they gave Q and As in after screenings at a cinema. And in the case of uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, they were showing Rear Window, and I had already seen Rear Window several times. And I was working in a cafe, as a as clear, clearing tables and things. So um, as I'd already seen it, I just arrived just at the end for the Q&A and it was in this basement preview theatre in, in Soho in London and I arrived at the lift and there was Hitchcock the two of us standing and we got into the lift I was completely overcome with because it was Alfred Hitchcock and I was overwhelmed and I won't deny it um, and for a kind of feeble joke I said to Hitchcock I hope we're not late, kind of meaning I hope we haven't missed it, which was fairly silly. And Hitchcock snapped, I'm not late. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was it. That was my, that was my um, inter, intercourse with, uh, verbal intercourse with Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> we're at a uh, hotel in Beverly Hills, and you're, that anecdote made me feel a lot better about uh, not saying anything to Seth Rogen, who I just shared an elevator with 10 minutes ago. I'll tell you a word for it. <laughs> More with Mike Lee in just a bit. Stay with us. When we come back from a quick break, we'll talk about how he values finding the emotional truth in historical films, even if it means fast-forwarding a year or two, or four. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build an online presence and run your business. Create your company's website using customizable layouts along with features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. And Squarespace offers built-in search engine optimization. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This is NASA. Uh, I see a flat Earth, but we should lie to everybody about it and say it's round 10-4. Maximum Fun brings you the latest podcast, an expose on the flat Earth. I want to take advantage of humankind and make them believe a lie so that they will trust us at the government. It's all an elaborate lie. And when you get on a plane, they purposefully fly you farther than you need to go. It's disgusting. It needs to be stopped. And if you listen to Ono, Ross, and Carrie, we will tell you the truth behind the lies. I'm just kidding. kidding. No, we no. won't do that. We will just tell you the truth behind the truth because what we do is we look at extraordinary claims. That's right. We've gone undercover with alternative medical treatments, fringe religious groups, fringe science claims, the spiritual paranormal. We're there to check it out and let you know what happens. Is the Queen Mary haunted? I don't know. Find out. We show up. We make friends. We learn what happens when you ask questions and we tell you all about it. And we get all that funky stuff done to us. It's Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org. Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, and I'm here to let you know that every Friday in April, we're bringing you an episode that spotlights women in comedy. You'll hear from Retta, the star of NBC's Parks and Recreation, and I'll talk to Russian doll actor Greta Lee and co-creator Leslie Headland, and many more. Listen now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mike Lee, the influential and acclaimed film director. 
He was behind the films Topsy-Turvy, All or Nothing, Life is Sweet, and more. He's one of my personal favorites. His newest film, Peterloo, tells the story of the 1819 massacre in Manchester, England. It's in theaters now. Did you have a sense of mission about the kind of films and theater that you wanted to make? Definitely. Um, Yeah, I mean, I did have this thing about wanting to make real life on the screen, you know. Um, Also, I wanted somehow to do what I guess I've done, which is to challenge the conventions of acting and what actors can do and, and, and therefore to to kind of open up a sort of a different way of looking at making things real, you know. I mean, uh, I realised that somehow actors and acting and the whole thing, actors could be somehow uh, treated as artists in their own right, really, not mere interpreters. Uh, And so that's... I mean, you're asking me, a lot of your questions are all about, at the moment, about the early days. And, you know, you feel your way, you know, you don't, you, you, you get to do what you're doing without quite knowing, quite knowing what it is that you are actually doing. But I had the opportunity by a series of flukes to get a job at this new arts centre in Birmingham where they'd built this incredible state-of-the-art theatre. And they were supposed to have a professional company of actors, but they hadn't got it together. Um, and they'd hired me as an assistant director for this operation. But they'd also established what they called an arts club for 16 to 25-year-olds, local kids, young, young people, I should say. And they said, OK, well, do whatever you want. Just do something interesting in this theatre. And I'd sort of formulated, I'd never got the idea on the go that somehow you could make work in the rehearsals, that you could combine writing and directing and acting and, you know, which, of course, lots of other people were also, in different ways, starting to investigate. We're talking about the mid-60s, the age of the happening, the age of, you know, new discoveries in, you know, pop art and everything else. And that's what I started to do. And I had this extraordinary freedom to put on stuff in this theatre for about a year or so. And it just, that's what got the ball rolling. I mean, uh, I knew I wanted to do it on film and it took a few years before I got that opportunity. But um, by the time I made my first film, Bleak Moments, in 1971, which I'm sure you've seen, um, I'd done 10 so-called improvised plays, a misnomer. That's what they were known as. And people say, oh, it's improvised. The actors are improvising in front of the audience. They're making it up as they go along while we watch. Of course, that was never the case, and it never is the case with that stuff. It's all about using improvisation and exploring and research and everything and arriving at something very, very precise and very distilled and dramatic. Uh, And that's what I was investigating and exploring. I had a very... um, During that period, I at one stage, got the job of assistant director at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre at Stratford-on-Avon, working on the big Shakespeare productions. And that was a terrific thing to do. I was only 24. Um, Apart from the fact that I was working on, you know, important and big productions and directing the understudies, which was quite a thing to do. You know, just just being there as part of a a really creative... um, classical 
process was well, sort of creative process doing classical work. But apart from anything else, it was incredibly educational and useful to work on those Shakespeare texts in a creative, modern. Uh, rehearsal environment. I worked with the great eccentric director, John Barton, who was a, an absolute expert on Shakespeare, and who would say, tell you what, why don't you cut that line in half? You take that line and swap swap that line round and let's just alter that. You know, like messing about with Shakespeare's text, but always no one would ever know, the audience would ever know. It would just improve the thing and it would make it work organically for the actors. And, you know, I, it was, apart from thinking about language and, and about the, the whole quality of language and all that, which informs my work right across the board, right down to Peterloo. That's the writing side of what I do. Because although I work with the actors in the way that I do, uh, no one should underestimate the the importance, as far as I'm concerned, of the quality of writing, um, not only of matters to do with dialogue and the nuances of language, but also the rhythms and um, weight of language and the quality of words and all the rest of it, but also structure and all the rest of it. When you're making a historical film like Peterloo, you have some responsibility to this thing that happened. Um, do you spend a lot of time learning about that thing that happened uh, in order to figure out what you can, you know, as in like in Peterloo, there's a, there's a, you know, the main characters are a family who you've invented, um, but you're still dealing with many real things. Oh yeah. I mean, of course, you, you know, if you're going to tell a story of historical background, you, you have to, um, know about it and you've got to research it and you've got to have it, you know, uh, be on top of it. But it's not a documentary. It is a dramatic distillation. I mean, first of all, apart from anything else, Peter Lewis itself, the film, uh, perpetrates a massive trick, a massive um, uh, cheat, which is it starts with the battle of Waterloo in 1815 and it ends with the Peterloo massacre in 1819. Well, that's four years and I put it to you that there is no way you think when you're watching the movie that four years have gone past. And I, that's a sleight of hand. I mean, you know, I've felt it important to see the Battle of Waterloo. And I mean, historically, a massive number of major, major things happened in the context of the story. But it kind of gives you the chance to send a character who's been at the Battle of... Not only because the, you know, the general who was at Waterloo became important in the story, but because yeah. you're able to send a character who was at Waterloo, you know, to the stables to ask for a job yeah. and be denied that you see the gravity of that battle and gives meaning to their consequences. Totally, totally. But, I mean, you could read all the books in the world, but that doesn't make it happen in front of the camera, obviously. You've got to, it's got to breathe flesh and blood into it. You've got to be idiosyncratic and detailed and, and selective. But I worked uh, with, on this film, as with both the previous historical films, with a historian, you know, around all the time, for me and for everybody else, you know, and everybody got into the research. I mean, the actors, not least on Peterloo, are really, really were really thorough in involving themselves in the research. And, you know, it, it only works with intelligent actors, you know. So I, thinking of another year, right, you you have a film that is, you know, kind of about um, the social dynamics of middle age. And 
I think that any actor, especially any actor who was themselves middle-aged, would have enough familiarity with that world to say, oh, you know, my my cousin, my sister, my best friend, they, they have these qualities and I really understand them very well and I can portray them. Um, you know, when you're making Peterloo, you're making a film about people who are directly engaged with the idea that if I make a mistake that leads to me losing my job, my family and I will die of starvation. And that might not be something that the actors have that kind of direct relationship with. That's true. But, you know, um, it's no leap for any intelligent, sensitive actor to empathize with that and to understand what it means. It's not, it's not you know, um, so obscure and remote that nobody can get anywhere near it. I don't think that's, a, that's not a problem, in other words, not at all, you know. It's funny that you, you're, you're really keen on working with intelligent actors, which makes a lot of sense because you're requiring a lot of their intellects in the process of creating your films. Um, intelligence is a nice thing to have as an actor, but I don't think it's requisite. Um, and I think there are probably a lot of great actors who are not intelligent. You know what I mean? Well, like I, they, lot, there, I would go further than I'd say there's a lot of actors who are thick as pig. <laughs> um, and none of them are in my films. <laughs> but like, you know, like I, when I was in acting school, I wouldn't, I would say that maybe there was a correlative, like a small correlative relationship between who was smart and who was good. But well, you know, it depends what we're talking about. First of all, what we're, what I'm what my sort of actors, my sort of acting, if you like, is character acting, which is to say, n nothing to do with what they mean by character actors in Hollywood, by old actors who play small parts. It's about actors who are not motivated just to play themselves, who are not motivated by narcissism or their egos, but are really, really good at and want to and are committed to playing real people out there in the street. And with that comes a whole lot of stuff, including the ability to empathise and to understand society and life and socioeconomic problems and so on and so forth that goes beyond just acting. Now, what you're quite correctly saying is there are people who have a natural um, some natural uh, performing abilities and natural entertaining abilities and so on and so forth I think also there are people who have uh, who have a kind of fluid access to their own emotional lives and to the, in, the imagination of a, an emotional life that is not an intellectual thing like no i i think uh i mean we need to separate out various i don't think in any case what we're talking about uh, either in the context of what i do or any other context involving actors it's not an intellectual thing at all i mean it may be that some actors can bring additionally some intellectual uh, muscle for example the actor Rory Kinnear, who plays the orator Hunt, Henry Hunt in Peterloo. Gentlemen, may I first avow that it is a matter of some pride, immense privilege, and not insignificant encouragement to be met here today in this great metropolis of London 
with such a wide and devoted body of reformers. I am certain that we have all, at times, faced with the mighty forces of tyranny wielded by those in power, felt that our actions were of no more impact than the ripples thrown up by a single pebble tossed into the sea. But let us know, as we turn to each other in this room, as we look our fellow man in the eye, in the sure knowledge that we gather here to protect and improve the lives and future lives of the tens, the hundreds of thousands of souls that we have the great honour to represent. Let us know that those ripples can and will begin to grow. In a way, you could argue that he brings some intellectual qualities to, to his uh, approach to the part. But that's not the primary, that's not what he actually does. It's not about intellectual, about intellect. It is about all the things that acting is about, which is, which, uh, is everything but intellect. But what we're talking about here is, uh, 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 of course, there are actors who, as you say, can um, find within themselves intuitively uh, something that will serve a script. But what I am concerned with is a whole different thing, which is actors who are not... Of course, in the end, every performance is tapping into what the actor is and what the actor has in his or her um, soul and understanding and passions and behaviour. But what I'm actually really concerned with is actors who, as I've already said, have got an ability to do real people who are not like them out there in the street, you know, and that's a whole different thing, you know. Also to play, this is important, to play characters who... Um, may not present them, the, the actor, in as gorgeous a light as they would like. You know, or not, you know the people say, oh, I, I couldn't play a part like that. It, it would ruin my career. I looked hor- She looked horrible. Leslie Manville in uh, Another Year, which you've mentioned. We've saved you some food, Mary. I hope it's still warm. Oh, thanks, Jerry. Oh, yeah, be fine. Please, some fresh if you like. Oh, no, Tom, don't worry about me. You didn't get arrested then, Mary? No, I didn't, Joan. It's very kind to me, actually. What well, CC is your car? What do you mean? How big's the engine? Oh, I don't know. Um, it's about this big, I think. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? Don't be cruel. You mean, how powerful is it, Mary? How many cubic centimetres is it? Oh. You should know that. Well, on the back, there's numbers like 1.6 or 1.9. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, well, that's boy stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's not important. <laughs> no, Tanya. I think I'm going to have a cigarette before I eat this. Excuse me, I'll get out of your way. Shall we take Isaac over there? OK. Oh, well, I, I thought you wouldn't mind because we're outside. No, we don't, Mary. You carry on. You're all right. You're all right. Yeah. It's OK. That's your swing. I mean, you know... Leslie Mavro is a great actress, a great versatile actress, is an attractive woman, but boy, she's not bothered about that when she plays that alcoholic woman. She, she, you know, she, she gets inside it and she, you see her crumbling and, you know, destroying herself, you know. Uh, so that's what it's about, basically. We'll finish up with Mike Lee after a quick break. Still to come, we'll talk about whether or not his sense of mission in filmmaking has changed now that he's in his 70s. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. We all have wild ideas, but rarely do we get to see our wildest ideas come to life. Started by adventure journalist Shelby Stanger and brought to you by REI, Wild Ideas Worth Living is a podcast that explores everything from mindfulness in school to adventures in space, overcoming fear and learning how to unplug, ideas that started big and wild and never stopped growing. Learn more or listen now. Search for Wild Ideas Worth Living. I'm Bob Boylan, creator of the Tiny Desk Concert Series. We've just launched the 2019 Tiny Desk Contest. It's our search for the next great undiscovered artist. The winner gets to play a Tiny Desk Concert. It'll change your life. Find out more at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. Hey, it's Janet Varney of the JV Club Podcast, and I am so excited to be joining Maximum Fun. If you're not yet familiar with the JV Club, it's a podcast with me and some of my favorite women, and in the summer, men, as we explore the highs and lows of our terrible teenage years into our adult lessons. For example, hear about Allison Bree's humiliating moment at a gymnastics competition, experience the shame of a knocked-out tooth with Jamila Jamil, or drop in as John Hamm imagines what would happen if Bambi met Godzilla. So join me and all my once-awkward, often-still-awkward friends every Thursday by subscribing to the JV Club on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is the great Mike Lee. He's an acclaimed writer and director. Lee made the films Naked, Topsy-Turvy, Secrets and Lies, just to name a handful. His latest is a historical drama called Peterloo. It tells the story of the Peterloo Massacre in Manchester, England. He's one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Let's get back to our interview. So the last two films that you've made with, you know, Peterloo being about this incredibly historically significant moment of class struggle in Manchester, where you, you're from, um, and Mr. Turner, which is like basically <laughs> what is art and why does it matter, the movie? Mm. Um, and, and I wondered if you feel like you are interested in different things in as a guy in your now 70s um, than you were in your 30s or 40s or 50s? Or indeed 20s, yeah. which is when I, when I made my first film. Um, well, I think inevitably, yes, but I'd say yes and no. I mean, I think th some of the um, foundation, core uh, preoccupations are still there, and you can see them in Peter Lewis as much, or in Mr. Turner. It's about looking at the way we look at people and the way we empathise with people and all the rest of it. But, yeah, I mean, you can't... I mean, I, I always... Um, uh, uh, report that without being conscious of it at the time I realised at one point that the films that I made after I became a parent were had a different preoccupations from the ones that I made before I entered that particular phase um, inevitably as you grow older particularly as you get into as you actually hit your 70s um 
which is fairly remarkable in itself, um, you kind of, you know, have a, a, a different kind, you know, a broader perspective on some things. But, you know, my, my natural preoccupations uh, have remained constant and the same, really. Um, so I don't, and if your next question is, what's my next film about? I can't tell you because I'm waiting to get some money. And when I know how much I've got, I'll know what size canvas I can paint. And when I know what size canvas I can paint, I'll decide what it is. And anyway, we'll investigate it by exploring it. It's hard for me to separate my experience of watching Mr. Turner from the fact that I was in a, a weird screening room and had a brutal migraine headache. But I will say that I stayed with it and was moved very profoundly. And it's not a short film either, um, despite that like searing pain in my head because I was so moved by the movie. And Did it cure your headache? Sadly, no. <laughs> If it was that easy, movie. If it was that easy, Mike. Um, but it certainly, uh, it, it certainly occupied a, a bit the part of my brain that otherwise might have been occupied with. Oh no, I'm in pain. Yes. Um, and I, I thought after I watched it, I thought I don't know why that made me feel so connected to the act of creation. Or for that matter, why other films that I've seen about art, um, including ones that are pretty good, didn't. And I wondered, watching it, like, did you think, I want to make a film about a painter, but I don't want to simply make it about whatever the most dramatic events of his or her life are? Because that's what most films like that, especially ones that I like, like, I'm just like, if, if it's a biographical film, if it's about the spirit of creation, I usually find it lame. And if it's just about some interesting things that happen to someone who also happens to be a great legendary figure, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm on board with this. But your film truly was about art. Oh, my goodness me. Oh, Mr. Turner, I am quite overwhelmed. Do as you wish, do as you wish. Oh, my, these are breathtaking, are they not? My dear late father would have much appreciated them. A naval man, I believe. Indeed he was, a vice admiral. Mm. We have the Battle of Trafalgar over here. Was oh. he there, your father? Uh, no, he was at Camperdown. Ah. Uh, Lord Nelson's flagship, the victory. Indeed. The sketch for the painting. Oh. Commissioned by the king. Is that so? Two years in the making. We didn't like it. Did he not? No. Too good for him. <laughs> well, I never, when I'm preparing a film, I never look at other movies. Um, some people have asked me about the great um, massacre sequence in um, Peterloo, whether I looked at, you know, Ran or Potemkin or whatever. And the answer is no. They're in my DNA anyway. I know those movies. But before I made... Um, Mr. Turner, I did sit down with a whole bunch of DVDs of all the movies about, not all, but nearly all the movies about painters. And uh, including, I mean, you know, um, <laughs> things from way down the other end of the spectrum, like Lust for Life, you know, which is kind of not exactly in the same department as Mr. Turner. Um and having done that, I have to report to you, I came to no conclusions at all. 
um, and thought, well, you know, I don't know, I haven't found the holy, the holy grail has not come out of this experience, merely that a lot of films about painters aren't really, as you say, aren't really about anything other than uh, a list of things that happen to somebody. I don't really know the answer to the question about Mr Turner, except that, to some degree, if the film worked, and it obviously worked for you despite your condition, um, it's as much as anything to do with Turner himself. Because here is the thing about, which is why I found it a fascinating subject, here is one of the greatest painters of all time, does this incredible... Um, epic, lyrical, poetic, uh, extraordinary stuff, anticipating Impressionism and um, 20th century abstract art, and yet was a great figurative painter, etc., etc., etc. But his extraordinary character, who you would, I mean, you would, ex people have said to me, I expected, I was surprised by the characterization of Turner. I expected him to be rather Byronic and. Uh, Poetic sort of, a, it wasn't. I mean, it was incredibly, you know, uh, carnal, um, idiosyncratic. Yeah, kind of guy, a weird grumpus. Which, in fact, he, he was. And so, you know, um, we were talking about, you know, r real people and, you know, uh, right way back we were talking about, you, you were positing the possibility of a some kind of tension between um, the the, the, the sense of tragedy and emotional feelings at my grandfather's funeral and the fact that an old man had, uh, carrying the coffin had a, uh, a gobbit of snot hanging off his nose. Um, but it's all part of the whole. And the thing about Turner is, you know, he was, a, you know, a real... He gave me the possibility of, you know, looking at an artist as a real... I mean, most artists are sort of eccentric in one form or another, but not... You know, I mean, um, so what I'm saying is that uh, the tension between the man and his art, in a way, gave us the kind of chemistry that may be something to do with what you're talking about, basically. I think also, you know, he acts like a jerk in the movie, um, but that is not the reason that he is a great artist it's a reason that he is a human being and we all to varying degrees act like jerks in our lives um and i think having seen so many biographical films that draw direct lines between uh people being jerks and being great artists or people going through pain and becoming great artists that are just like you know big thick black lines with an arrow at the end um, it felt like, you know, honestly, it felt like that experience of, you know, uh, getting snapped at in an elevator by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, it's like, right, this person is a person. Yeah. As I'm a person, as you are a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it's about, you know, and, and in a way, um, I suppose you would have to say that pretty much, um, Nearly or not all, but nearly all films about painters and artists and things uh, d deal in stereotypes, deal in generalizations of heroes or anti heroes or whatever. And 
in the way that I don't do that in any of my films, Mr. Turner is no exception. You know, we're looking at, uh, you know, um, a, a guy, you know, a, 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 as though we were looking at somebody in the contemporary world uh, and who, who, what he does is he's a painter, you know. So you have alluded in our conversation to your disinterest in doing things on other people's terms or other people's way. Um, and you seem like your commitment to that is as absolute as anyone, at least in movies where you're constantly having to ask other people for money as I've ever met. Um, why is that? Is it, have you ever felt like it would be an interesting experience to take $75 million of someone's money and, make a, a spy movie or something? No, because that's not what I do and I'm not interested in it. And I would f*** it up, basically. <laughs> you know, I mean, what's the hell? I kind of want to watch that movie. What's but... the point? What's the point? You know, I do what I do. I, I've constantly challenged my own status quo. I, I mean, I've made films within my own genre, if you want to use that word, um, which are quite all pretty different from each other. Um, but no, I mean, you know, here's the thing. I mean, I, I, my late producer would come back sometimes on a number of occasions from meetings with people with money. And he'd say, you know what? They don't care that there's no script. They don't care they don't know what it's about. But they will insist on a name. And by a name, they meant a Hollywood A-list actor, a star. In other words, start with the premise of that actor and we'll give you all the money you want. Well... I mean, what is the point of that, apart from the fact that... I mean, I'm, I'm, there are some very good actors who are Hollywood A-list actors. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I no, mean, I like, no, look, no, there no, are I, people I, who are really yes, just compelling I, I, screen presences. Yeah, and who I might know not some be, of them, and some but, of them are friends of mine. No, that's not, not, that isn't the point. But that is not a... That is not... That's irrelevant. That's not a starting... You know, that's not a starting premise. I've never cast any actor... We've never got the money on the basis that an actor was going to be any actor. And, I, you know, there are people, uh, you know, I, I, we put uh, Jim Broadbent on the list first for a, a, another year. And he, by that time, he was an, an Oscar winner. But we didn't say that, that wasn't the basis on which we got the dosh because that's not on, you know, any more than saying, you know, uh, this is the subject or anything. And as to doing, uh, you know, a, 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 a spy movie or whatever, I mean, what, uh, plenty of other people can do that perfectly. Well, I do what I do. And uh, in, you know, with modest budgets, I mean, even Mr. Uh, Mr. Turner and certainly Peter Lou, I mean, the size of the budget, given what we've delivered for that money is peanuts, basically, to be honest. It's Amount. Um, but the, the price, that's the price you pay for real independence. And I'm very comfortable with that. I don't feel the need to step. It's not even stepping outside. It's just simply irrelevant to waste time doing something that I, you know, wouldn't have my heart in. You know, um, Sometimes I, you know, go to film festivals and things, and people say, oh, you, "Do you want to watch the mood? Do you watch your own films?" I say, "Yeah, I can watch my own films. I enjoy watching my own films. I don't sit up all night like Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard watching my whole oeuvre every night because um, that would be boring. There are other things to watch. Yeah, well, that's that's well, my job, Mike. That's your job. No, I do. You know, I, I like to watch movies, but um, 
I can watch my own films because I like my own films. Because I think if you don't like your own films, why the hell should you expect anybody else to like them? But I do know directors, and so do you, who can't watch certain films they've made, not for any reason other than the fact that they're not the films they wanted to make, that they were compromised, that they had to have the actor they didn't want, or the end was altered by the producer or whatever it was. Uh, I have not had to suffer from any of all that. And that's by staying within the limited, if you like to call it that, though I don't, um, parameters of low-budget, independent operating. Do you feel different stakes in filmmaking in your mid-70s? Or, I mean, do you feel like I'm going to make five more movies, so I better make them count? Uh, no, I think um, I, if I make five more movies, I'll be lucky. Uh, and you'll be very lucky. Um, <laughs> uh, I think five more movies... Well, we've already learned what I do at night. So. I mean, you know what? Five more movies is... Uh, I mean, I'm 76, right? Uh, it would take me... Uh, well, if I'm still making movies in 10... If I'm still around in 10 years' time, I'll be pretty impressed um you know and i hope i don't die very soon otherwise you really will regret this conversation <laughs> you'll be sorry you ever asked me that you know. um no i mean uh, look here's the thing uh, what you're asking me is do i feel it matters as much as i did and the answer is yes if you're going to do it you know you're not i'm not doing it for i'm doing it for audiences i'm doing it for as part of something you know yes uh, things matter. God, we live in a world where things are muttering more and more. I mean, everything's falling apart at the seams, you know. Um, you know, there's a scene in Peterloo. Um, just the night before the massacre, where you see the, uh, um, the couple in bed talking about their granddaughter. And she says... She looks at the granddaughter and she says, she's going to be 85 in 1900. I wonder what the world will be like for her. Now, we put that scene together on the location about one week before my first grandson was about to be born. He was born and he's now 18 months old and he's a perfectly healthy little kid. So I was thinking about, I had been thinking about uh, what will the world be like for this impending child, my grandson, um, at the, in 2100, which is about the same distance as 1819 it was from 1900. Um, so I was thinking about that. And um, so I put that in the film because it seemed, apart from the, I also thought it would be good to refer to 1900 to help us get a sense of link with the, the earlier period. I look at my grandson and, it, you know, it fills me with great optimism because he's a bright little kid. But also you can't but be somehow pessimistic about what the world will be like in at the end of the 21st century. You know, um, we are destroying the planet. The, the number of people that have been born during the time we've been having this conversation in Beverly Hills would uh, not fit into this whole hotel, probably. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is uh, there are things to celebrate and there are things to be very worried about. Um, and in, in those contexts, the question you're asking me about the stakes and my feeling about, you know, 
whether it matters and films I might make. Frankly, those things are, are inescapable, really. Mike, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. I thank you for your films. No, it's been really nice talking to you. Thank you. And I hope your headache goes away very soon. <laughs> Mike Lee, Peterloo, is in theaters now. I have to say, uh, getting to talk to Mike Lee is a real highlight of my career. And if you're not already familiar with Mr. Lee's work, a movie that I might recommend that might be a nice place to start is called Happy Go Lucky from 2008, which is a vehicle for Sally Hawkins, who you might have seen in The Shape of Water, who is so brilliant in the film. And it it is just a very small movie about what it is like to be a youngish adult that is the very rare film that captures the feeling of being that age without any condescension or any kind of sense that people that age are dumb or like only are identified by their romantic adventures and it is so sweet and funny and moving But that, of course, is true of almost all of his films. Even the saddest ones are sweet and funny, and even the funniest ones are moving. So, yeah, go go watch Mike Lee movies. Happy-go-lucky, that's a good one to start with. But Peter Lou's pretty amazing, too. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at the MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where the benches and planters have been painted. They were gray before. Now they're kind of an ocean blue, maybe a teal color. And the planters are a kind of persimony orange. Tasteful choices. We like them. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally, DJW. Our thanks to him. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And special thanks this week to the flu vaccine which I have been taking every year since I got the flu really bad, like seven or eight years ago, and uh, really knocked me on my rear for like 10 or 12 days. And I got the flu this year, but it only lasted about 36 hours, 48 hours, and I'm just barely back in the office right now. So thanks, flu vaccine, and thanks to everybody else out there who got the flu vaccine, who was protecting me and protecting all the folks who can't get the flu vaccine. We have almost 20 years of interviews available for you to enjoy at MaximumFun.org. You can also check out the back catalog, at least a number of years worth of it, in your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and at Bullseye. You can also search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube, where all of our recent interviews are archived. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.